Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Memory Lane. We've done a Pirate, a Steeler, a Penguin, a Pittsburgh Panther, so now it's time to go through again. And joining the show this week is a guy who's, I'm going to be honest, I wasn't allowed to say your name growing up in Western Pennsylvania, but I'm going to do it now because you're nice enough to join the show. It is Sid Bream, the infamous Sid Bream, but I don't want to say infamous because you seem like a pretty good guy. Sid, how are you today? No, I'm doing very well, buddy. It's great to be on with you, bud. Good. I'm glad to have you here. So a quick story before we get started. I was born in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, which I believe is your hometown, isn't it? That's, that is where I went to school. I was actually born in Mount Holly Springs, Pennsylvania. Okay, I actually knew that because uh, my, my dad tells me, I wasn't alive in 1992 when the, when the play happened, but my dad was, and he's a big Pirates fan, and he said it was tough enough to see Sid Bream, my whole family, he and all of his brothers were a big fan of you. Uh, and they said it was tough enough to see you do that, you know, slide home and everything. But then they had to drive by that Mount Holly sign that says the hometown <laughs> of Sid Bream. And they, they all, I mean, all of them, they all talk about how it just broke their heart. But I mean, hey, that's, that's part of the game, I guess. They're all still fans of you. My dad, if, if you care at all, he said uh, he has forgiven you since you're coming on the show. So well, you, you tell your dad, I certainly appreciate it. There are still some that haven't, but let, let me, let me just share with you that welcome sign to Mount Holly Springs. The letters used to be real big. Now they're about that big. A <laughs> <laughs> uh, little, little revisionist history, I guess. So before we get into that play, which we are going to talk about, I want to talk about your time in Pittsburgh because you mm -hmm. grew up a Pirates fan from what I read. And you come to the team, I believe it was in 1985. What was it like getting traded to, your home, or to the team you grew up rooting for? Well, I mean, no, let's back up. I mean, because, you know, Pittsburgh wasn't my team. I mean, oh. I, I, didn't even, I didn't even have a chance truly to watch them be on television. And even, even when I was playing with them in 19, starting in 1985, Pittsburgh wasn't covered back there until – basically a lot of pressure was put on the, the uh, cable companies in order to put it there because of me being there. Oh. And, uh, but I grew up because my dad was a big St. Louis Cardinals fan. I grew up being a St. Louis Cardinals fan and not, I mean, you know, again, back then you saw one game a week. I mean, that was a Saturday game. And if, if the Cardinals were playing, you had a chance to watch them. Other than that, you didn't have a chance to uh, watch a whole lot of baseball uh you know coming from st louis but so uh so i don't mean to correct correct no. you but but at the same time i would i grew up a pirates fan because my my oldest brother is named after stan usual stan his name stands so uh um you know so my dad my dad loved the cardinals oh, okay i guess I, I read that somewhere i guess they were wrong um but so but to talk about you growing up in pennsylvania did you ever go to three river stadium or forbes field as a kid at all no, no, we, I mean, you know, again, being in Carlisle, I mean, the two stops that we would make is Baltimore and Philadelphia mm -hmm. and uh, Philadelphia was two hours away. You know, out here was three and a half hours away. And, and um, you know, so when we did have a chance to go to ball games, it was those two, I mean, Baltimore was even a little bit closer than that. So, um, you know, dad, dad every so often would give us an opportunity to go see a professional game but it was those two. Okay. Well, I apologize again for that mistake. I'll try to get it all right moving forward here. <laughs> uh, so you come to the Pirates in the mid-80s when 
they were at a low point, but you were around kind of to see them come up. Uh, yeah. In 1986, I look at uh, your numbers. You had a career high in home runs that year, I believe, with 16. 16. And you also set a record for 166 assists at first base that year. What was it like to get uh, y- your first real everyday opportunity uh, playing? Well, I mean, you know, I, I, I share with individuals. I mean, you know, when I – I started off with the Los Angeles Dodgers in 1981, second round of the June draft, came up through their minor league system. And, and uh, you know, when I got the triple A, I was up and back on an insurance policy, DL. Somebody would go down on the DL, I'd be up in order to take their spot. But uh, I knew right then and there that, I mean, shoot, I wasn't going to be playing for the Dodgers because Tommy Lasorda liked Greg Brock, the first baseman, and Al Campanis the general manager like Franklin Stubbs that was right behind me. And I knew that I wasn't going to be playing for the Dodgers. And so when I got traded over to the Pittsburgh Pirates in 1985, a lot of people come up and said, man, you got to be ticked off. I mean, you just went from a first place team to a last place team. I said, "Uh uh-uh. I said, my goal was get to the major leagues and it wasn't going to happen over there. And and, uh, so we did start off slow, but that 1986 season, I mean, uh, you know, as, as as much as that was, I played every day. I mean, I, oh, I, I shouldn't say I played every day, but I played, uh, you know, a good portion of the time and I got some at-bats and, and not that 16 home runs and 72 RBIs is a great year. But for me, it was a good first year. Uh, it could have been better. But, uh, you know, I was thankful to be on a major league squad helping and hopefully uh, going to see a team that was going to improve with Sid Thrip and Jim Leland. And that's you, – you started my next talking point. The next year – yeah, in 86, uh, your, your first big year uh, was Jim Leland's first year with the club. Mm-hmm. And you were around for a lot of the early years with Jim Leland. What was it like playing for Jim Leland? Jim Leland was a phenomenal individual. I mean, I – you know, I've had a lot of managers in my – the game – uh, you know, all of them good people, but uh, if I was to put somebody, you know, at the top of the line as far as, um, you know, if I if I was to say who was the best manager that I played for, it would definitely have been Jim Molina. We, my wife and I thought a lot about him. Um, we actually named our third son's middle name after him, Austin Leland. And, uh, but, uh, you know, he was, he was somebody – uh, that, uh, as I say, he would tell you the truth. And whether it was the truth that uh, he wouldn't blow air up your dress or he was just somebody that uh, if you needed a kick in the butt, he, he, he'd just tell you the truth. And uh, you appreciated that as a, uh, as a ball player. And, I mean, he, for those reasons and many more, he's still beloved here in Pittsburgh. I mean, you, yeah. you never hear anyone say anything bad, bad about him. And uh, – what was it like watching him kind of change the culture, I guess, for the Pirates? Because like, when you came there, 85, it was low. I think you guys only won like 50-something games. And in a yeah, span but I think of – we lost 103 ball games that year yeah. in 1986. And, you know, and again, I, I give a lot of credit to Jim, but I also give a lot of credit to Sid Thrift, the new general manager that came in. He started to see the holes that needed to be taken care of, and he brought the people in in order to fill those holes. And, and that – that was the uh, the key to, to watching our numbers continuing to go up as far as victories are concerned. What was it like watching that team be built 
I mean, you see, you see guys getting called up, the top prospects. You see trades being made. I, I mean, I know Lavalier and Van Slyke came in the same deal. Uh, other guys are being acquired. What was it like seeing it all kind of come together? Well, I mean, again, it was, it was, it was neat watching uh, a program or a, a ball, ball team have the opportunity to do what they needed to do in order to uh, bring a winner there. And, uh, you know, bringing Dre back in and, and then bringing Jay Bell and, you know, Barry, bringing Barry Bonds up and Bobby Bonilla and, uh, Andy, like you said, Andy Van Slyke and, and uh, Mike Lavalier and Neil Heaton and, you know, so many great ballplayers, Brian Fisher, so many great ballplayers that we brought in that uh, it just, the, the pieces of the puzzle just started coming together. And, uh, and then Jim, with Jim Leland's leadership, uh, kicking our butts when we needed to have our butts kicked and, and uh, you know, just trying to get us to calm down and relax, uh, you know, and get us to focus on winning uh, was, was a, a huge key for both, you know, for the winning that took place during that time frame. You mentioned one guy I wanted to ask you about, Barry Bonds. What was it like watching him come up? Did you guys know that this guy was just going to be something special? He was. I mean, he was, uh, you know, there's, you know, in the game of baseball, there's there's individuals that, uh, you know, have this talent and there's just a couple individuals that just have a little more. And uh, Barry Bonds, you know, Daryl Strawberry, you know, some individuals like that, they were two ballplayers that God just gave them a little bit more talent. And, uh, and watching them perform was, was, a, was a real treat. And uh, Barry, Barry certainly was, uh, was a God-gifted young man, and it was, it was great to be on his team. What was it like? Uh, what was, did you have a relationship with Barry at all? Well, I mean, again, we talked. I mean, you know, it, it wasn't like uh, we hang out, we hung out after the ball games or anything like that. But you know, from he would he would come. I was a chapel leader. He would come to chapels. Uh, you know, we'd talk a little bit here and there. But it wasn't like I was buddy buddy. I, he wasn't my closest friend, but uh, we we still had our our friendship. What was the dynamic, do you think, and if you don't feel comfortable speaking on it, you don't have to, between Leland and Bonds? Because I know at times they got heated, but overall I think they pushed each other in a good way, right? Well, absolutely. I mean, you know, again, that's the one thing that I really enjoyed about Jim Leland. I mean, so many individuals pamper to the franchise player, and uh, Jim Leland wouldn't have anything to do with that. I mean, you know, if you weren't giving it everything you had, he was going to let you know about it. He, he would get the grass stains with you. He, he knew he might get his butt kicked, but uh, he would get the grass stains with you, but he was not going to let somebody take over his team. That was his team. And he was going to make sure that he stayed the leader and he was going to, to, uh, you know, push people. And, you know, for Barry Bond's sake, I mean, Barry wasn't the greatest outfielder in the world when he came in. He was a tremendous hitter. And I, and I, I've said this, all along, I said Bill Burden uh, really and truly made Barry Bonds into the outfielder he was. I mean, he he worked his butt off in spring training and throughout the course of the year to make Barry into the outfielder the outfielder he was. Yeah, I, I just think back to that clip. I think that occurred after you were gone, uh, yes. where he he says, "I'm the effing manager," and like, and mm -hmm. that's just something where 
you don't see that in, in pro sports a lot where you said it yourself, you know, star player gets different treatment. And uh, yeah. Jim Whelan just didn't seem to be that kind of guy. Everyone was a part of the team. So that's kind Absolutely. of Absolutely. I mean, you know, you, you just, you just weren't going to, you just weren't going to take over the team. I mean, Jim Whelan knew what his role was. He knew what the player's role was. And I mean, it wasn't something that he was going to allow uh, people to, uh, you know, take advantage of that and, and do their own thing. And I, and I, and that's another thing that I think the, the teammates appreciated out of him. I mean, you know, you could go to different ball clubs, and and the and the manager would pansy to the the franchise players, and you know the other ones saw that. I mean, it wasn't the uh, it wasn't a great feeling. Everybody should be treated the same way. So as you're with the Pirates, as time goes on, you get, you're getting better and better. Uh, I think in '88. You guys finished in second place. We did. Going into 1990, did you know that that was the year that you guys were finally going to break well, through? No, we really thought 1989 was going to be the year. I mean, you know, to go back to the 1988 season, I mean, I always – I love the story of uh, we, were, we were one game behind the New York Mets. Yeah, I think it was July or August. I think it was August. And we were winning a game one to nothing going into the ninth inning, and Jim Goddard, closer, came into the game. And uh, I don't know if it was an out or two, or but Howard Johnson came up to the plate, third baseman for the Mets, and we had a we had an infield meeting along with Jim Malilan out on the mound. And and uh, as we were doing that, I remember Jim Malilan said, "Do not throw Howard Johnson a fastball." Jim got sat on the mound. Yes, sir. No fastball. Do not throw Howard Johnson a fastball. Yes, no, no fastball. Do not throw Howard Johnson a fastball. Yes, no fastball. So everybody dispersed back out to their positions, leaving to the bench, and Mike Lavoie got in, gave, gave slider, shook him off. Slider, shook him off. Slider, shook him off. I mean, fastball, shook, you know, said yes, threw a fastball, hit the home run. They tied up the game, went on to win it. And from that place, we kind of plummeted a little bit. But, uh, you know, uh, but we we knew that we were starting to come up into our own. And we thought 1989 was going to be our year. But then injuries, you know, myself, Michael Lavalier, real quick early in the season, along with some other things that took place. And uh, it just kind of wiped us out for that season. And so 1990 was the year that we were really expecting to be able to do something. What was it like to finally break through and win that, win that NL East title? Oh, my goodness. I mean, you know, again, we, we came a long way. I mean, I, uh, I was in a foxhole with those guys and, and to, to bust our rear ends and do what we were doing and, you know, to, to have a manager that was supporting us and pushing us and Sid Thrift that was doing such a great job of filling the holes and doing what he needed to do and, and even management or ownership that was giving them the opportunity, you knew, you knew that they wanted to win. Uh, you don't do those things and, and not want to win. And so you, you felt that, you kept, you, you kept on pressing and going into that 1990 year and, and closing it out in St. Louis was a, uh, you know, it, it, was, it was just, it was a joyous occasion because that's what you're shooting for. And, and uh, so it was, it was really good to be a part of that. Were you guys, what was the city like 
then just to see the the fans reaction after i mean they had the 70 and the 60s and the 70s were some of the best era in pittsburgh sports history as far as baseball goes and then the 80s it was dark i mean on top of the the losing there was you know the lost stuff that happened as well it was tough and they had attendance problems to start off the yeah. new decade with a with a division crown that that had to have been a pittsburgh had to have been buzzing they were. I don't. I don't remember. I mean, obviously they were buzzing, but I also remember them. You know, they had to put tarps up still in order to, uh, you know, make it look like the place was full. That they, that you know, you would think that uh, you know a, an opportunity like this comes, man, you would have no trouble putting sixty thousand people into the stands. You haven't won in a long time, but that wasn't the case. I mean, they had to put tarps up out and out in the outfield, up in the upper deck, and uh, just to try to squeeze people in, and um, but still, I mean, it was it was still an exciting time for for Pittsburgh. Those that those that were watching, those that were faithful to it, I mean, uh, it was it was a great time to be a, a Pittsburgh Pirate at that point. Did you like playing baseball at Three River Stadium? I mean, you played in an era where there was those the multi-purpose fields, yeah. like the cookie cutters or what they're called. Did you like that, or did you prefer playing in the natural baseball field? I, I mean, I wouldn't, no, I wouldn't have my, probably my knee injuries today if it wouldn't, if it wouldn't for the, the, the turf. I mean, you know, when I tore my ACL in 1989, I mean, it was strictly because of that turf that my foot wasn't able to spin. I mean, it grabbed it and my knee spun and snapped my ACL. And, and uh, so I love, I love playing on turf. I wish I, let me, or I love playing on natural, natural turf. I will say this, the natural turf back then wasn't the natural turf of today. Yeah. You got a lot, you got a lot more bad hops. Uh, you know, the, the, the way that they do things today. I mean, you know, it's, it's, you don't ever see generally a, a bad hop in the game of baseball anymore. The, the, uh, the particular dirt and everything that they use. I mean, it, uh, it's almost, it's almost like self healing and uh, you never get a bad hop back then but again for me it was uh it was one of those i mean if i had that uh, i certainly wouldn't have had my knee injuries and i would be i'd be doing a whole lot better today with my knees yeah that's i remember when i was playing in like travel ball in high school and everything we played on because a lot of schools in pennsylvania now they have mm -hmm. that turf for the baseball field that way they can play you know in yeah. the western pa weather uh, and one of my coaches played at uh three rivers in like a whitfield championship game he goes this was not the turf I remember playing yeah. on. It's completely different. No, I mean, e even if we had the turf of today, I mean, with the, the little bits of rubber and sand mm -hmm. in it, and so I wouldn't have had the knee injuries. I mean, it was just that turf was so sticky with your spikes in it. That, uh, you know, it, it just grabbed and, and uh, you know, it, it just wasn't it, – it put a lot of pressure on your joints. So after 1990, you leave Pittsburgh. Um, was it tough? To leave the Pirates, a team that was oh, yeah. doing well. I mean, you know, we lost to the Cincinnati Reds, you know, in 1990 in the playoffs. Mm -hmm. The very next day, I mean, the management ownership came out and said Sid Bream's our first priority to sign for the 1991 season. So, my wife and I were ecstatic, thinking we were going to get a long-term deal. We we're going to be here for a while, and uh, we were really looking forward to that. But uh, through negotiations in the fall, they never got close to market price on me. And uh, so we did go to free agency and uh, the Atlanta Braves gave me, said, hey, this is our offer. 
we need you to make a decision and we need you to make it now or because uh, we got to go someplace else if you're not coming here. And so we made the decision to go. But as I've told so many individuals, I mean, you know, my wife and I literally cried our eyes out all, all night, all through the next day. Called up Jim Leland the next morning as soon as we woke up and said, Jim, I said, I asked him, I said, am I bound to this contract? He said, Sid, he said, you, you haven't put your name on it yet. You're not bound to it. So to make a long story short, Noah, I mean, I called my, my attorney and my attorney back then was, if you remember Payne Stewart going down on his plane, uh, my attorney was on that plane with Payne Stewart, Robert Fraley. And, um, you know, so I called him, talked to him for an hour and a half, him trying to talk me out of doing something stupid and coming back to Pittsburgh with the contract that I have. But at the end of the hour and a half, uh, he had somebody go to the Pittsburgh. Let's just cut to the chase. We got, we got to the place where he, Robert called me back and said, what if, what if you sign with Pittsburgh and they trade you down to Atlanta, you're going to look like an idiot. You could have had this much money. And, uh, and now you, you only have this much. And I said, great point. So let's, let's go back to the pirates and ask for a no trade clause. They said no to a no trade clause. And I said, well, if I'm your first priority, I'd hate to see what your last one is. And so we made the decision to go down to the Atlanta Braves. And, and, uh, and then obviously people in Pittsburgh understand that we knocked them out of it the next two years. And uh, so, I, it, you know, my heart was with the Pittsburgh team. My heart certainly wasn't with the Pittsburgh ownership at that time. That's a fair point. I, I mean, I know you're a, you're, you're a pretty good dude, it seems like. But did, did it feel good, I guess, to, to knock them out? Just, you know, say take that a little bit or no? 1991, though, was very, very difficult. I mean, I, you know, I hit my first grand slam in baseball against the Pittsburgh Pirates, and you would have thought my mom just died. I mean, looking at me in the dugout when I hit the grand slam against them. Because, I mean, again, I was in the foxhole with those guys, man. I, I went from worst to first, and, uh, you know, I had a lot of good friendships over there, you know, Jim Leadon and a lot of other guys. And, and I didn't intend to be down in Atlanta at that time. I, I intended to be with the Pittsburgh Pirates from what they shared. And, and so I had, uh, it, was, it was tough on me to knock them out of it the first year. You know, after that, 1992, I mean, it started to get a little bit easier. But I still, in the back of my mind, said, man, you know, I, I want those guys to get to the World Series. I wanted us to get to the World Series even more. Mm-hmm. But I, I wish they could be in another league so that we could have played against them in the World Series. Talk about the World Series. I want to talk to you about the entire 1991 series uh, season uh, first with the Atlanta Braves. We mentioned earlier in the show how you got to you were a part of it, watching the development of the early 90s Pirates, watching these guys get called up, traded in, signed, whatever. You got to see that too in Atlanta. I mean, they they built. I mean, and that was a more sustained dynasty there mm-hmm. with how many, mm-hmm. however, I think 14 in a row division titles or something crazy like that. Um, something that probably will never be matched. Uh, what was that like seeing that team come up and just, you know, they acquire, I believe in the same off season as you, they acquire Pedalton as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you have the pitching staff, obviously, which I want to ask you about more later. What was, what was it like to watch that team? And you, you had to just be looking around saying, this is going to be a problem for the rest of the league for a while. Well, I mean, just to understand this, Noah, I mean, in 1990, that team 
apart from Terry Pendleton, Charlie Lee, Brent, Raphael, Belliard, and myself, they were in last place. They had the worst game, worst season in baseball. So your guys of David Justice, John Smoltz, Tommy Glavin, Steve Avery, Ronnie Gant, I mean, the whole slew of them, they were in last place. The great talent that was there, they uh, they didn't put anything together. And so, you know, again, I give, like I gave Sid Thrift a lot of, a lot of uh, credit. I mean, John Sherholtz did a really, really good job. And and again, today people they people fill their bench with thinking guys that hit 40 home runs, you know, 100 RBIs. But you know, so many times, I mean, they could be a positive as far as their offense, but they're negative in the clubhouse. And I mean, and that just destroys a clubhouse. And so John Sherholtz did a great job of bringing guys in that knew how to win. I mean, with Charlie and Raphael Belliard, myself. He showed up positions just like Sid Thrift did. And, uh, you know, Terry Pendleton and myself were given permission from Bobby Cox to, to uh, you know, have team meetings. I mean, and just start to lay out, this is what needs to happen if we want to win. And uh, it was a really, really neat time to watch guys change their attitude throughout the course of that year. We're going to get right back to my interview with Sid Green, but first, a word from our sponsors. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. To your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. What was it like going from Leland to Bobby Cox? I mean, those are two of the best managers of all time, and you just go from one to the other like that. Bobby, Bobby, you know, again, great. Great manager in the, in the sense that he allowed you to play. I mean, he didn't put pressure on you. He didn't have your thumbprint. I mean, like I said, most managers would not allow you to have team meetings without them being president. present. I mean, Bobby Cox allowed us free will. I mean, uh, we could call a team meeting anytime we wanted. Coaches were out of there, and we were able to hash things out and get people focused on what needed to be focused on. And, and so – uh, you know, Bobby allowed you to play. Uh, you know, Bobby was a stickler for looking like a ball player, uh, giving it a hundred, hundred percent. If you didn't give it a hundred percent, you were going to let, he was going to let you know it. And, uh, and, and again, with the, with the pitching staff of Avery and Maddox, Maddox and Glavin and Smoltz and, you know, good grief. You don't, you don't get too many pitching staffs like that. So, uh, you know, Leo, Leo Mazzoni, he didn't have to do a whole lot of work with those guys. I mean, they knew what they were doing. So, but uh, it was, it was, uh, it was fun. I mean, Bobby was a great manager, appreciated him, and uh, it was great to be able to play for him. Did you face those guys like in early spring training and just those, that pitching staff and you were, you had to be thinking, I'm either going to bat 100 this year or this, this staff is going to all win 20 games. Well, I just want you to know, no, when I faced Smoltzy, 
with with the Pirates. I mean, I had a game that I was five for five off of him with a home run. Wow. Uh, Maddox, I mean, I remember, remember a thing with Pittsburgh that uh, I hit a home run down the right field line. And, and literally when I hit it, I thought it was going way foul because I hit it straight down the line. I thought it was going to hook into the foul seats. And so I stood there in the batter's box and uh, the ball stayed fair. And at that point in time, I mean, I ran around the bases and felt horrible because that wasn't me. And I, I didn't want to show pitchers up. And uh, next time up, Jody Davis was behind the plate, the catcher. And I just said, Jody, I said, man, I just want to tell you, I'm sorry for standing here in the box. I thought that ball was going to go way foul. And, and uh, it surprised me when it didn't. So I'm thinking, okay, everything's fine. Well, next pitch, I mean, plunk. I mean, I got plunked by Greg Maddox. And I said, I deserve that and went down to first base. But uh, but at the same time, I mean, those those individuals, they just they knew what they were doing. They they and again, it was all a process. I mean, Greg Maddox didn't start off as being Greg Maddox. Tommy Glavin, John Smoltz, and Steve Avery didn't start off as being you know those guys in their in their climax. I mean, they learned, and and uh, that's what everybody has to do up there. You have to adjust. You have to learn, and those guys did a great job of it, and that what's, that's what made them the great pitchers that they were. Another guy I wanted to ask you what it was like playing with was a guy who probably wasn't around as much as your normal teammates, Deion Sanders. Yeah. You, uh, you played in an era where there were multi-sport athletes, something I don't think we're going to probably ever see again. Yeah. Uh, what was it like you know, when he's coming in on helicopters and everything to playoff games? What was it like playing with prime time? Well, I mean – you know, prime time, I mean, he was there. And, I mean, I sat on the bench and had some great conversations with prime time. I mean, because, I mean, I was a platoon player. He was generally a platoon player. And uh, we had some great conversations on the bench. And, uh, you know, one, one of those individuals, like I said before, just so God-gifted. Uh, you know, he had such talent as far as uh, his speed and um, you know, just his abilities that he had. And, and so it was a privilege, privilege to be able to play on his teams and, and uh, watch him do his thing. What was your thought on the decisions that were made to limit his playing time in the postseason because of him choosing to play football as well as – what were your thoughts you know, on that, that? That's my – that's not my job. I mean, you know, I again, that was ownership or that was general manager and, and – and manager's job to, to think about that type of stuff. I mean, uh, you know, Dion, as you said, was a rare talent. And, um, you know, I can say as a, as a ball player, it's, it was tough. But, but if, he, if he was able to make sure that he was back and forth for every game and he was giving it his best, I mean, and he was going to be able to give it everything he had, not get worn out and tired and not be able to help us, then, hey, you know, good for him. Um, did you? Was it cool to like on Sundays to watch him play football and just like, hey, that that guy's also my teammate, and he's just picking off Brett Favre with ease. You know, did you root for the Atlanta Falcons at that point in time too, or no? Uh, no, I. I mean, you know, I was concentrating on baseball at that time, and and uh, I don't even know if I watched him a whole lot. I'm sure that I I peeked in our TV room and was watched every so often a little bit, but. We were generally playing bell games at the same time he was he was uh, out on the football field. So, um, but uh, like I said, great great talent and uh, glad to be a part of it. 
So you talked earlier about the uh, 1991 NLCS. You guys beat the Pirates. Uh, you go on to the 1991 World Series, which for my money is probably the best World Series of all time. Would you agree with that? I, I would, I would really agree with that. I mean, it was the, the, the at-bats. I mean, the games were won in the last at-bat, the, the last at-bat. Um, you know, the, the pitching performances that took place, the back and forth that took place. I mean, I have no doubt in my mind that uh, if it's not number one, I mean, it's, it's definitely number two. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned that. So five games were decided by one run. Four games were decided on the final at-bat of the game. Uh, three games went to extra innings, including game – I think six and seven went to extra seven. innings. And yep. then game six had the, one of the best calls in baseball history, the we will see you tomorrow night. And then game seven, zero to zero, goes into extra innings. And one of the best – and I know it might be a little painful to reflect on because you're at, mm. on the losing end of it. But, I mean, just looking yeah. back on it, like, that, that just has to be – What's it like to be a part of like that kind of history? Well, as you said, no, I mean, it, it would have been nice if we were on the, uh, the winning side of that and we had, we had our opportunities. I mean, you know, obviously we recognized, you know, the play that Lonnie Smith was deked at second base with run against double. Uh, that's, you know, one situation. Terry Pendleton had a guy on third base with less than two outs and, and Jack got him to pop straight up in the air. Uh, I had bases loaded with less than two outs and hit into a, uh, you know, a three, three, two, three double play. Um, you know, Jack, Jack did a great job of pitching. Um, you know, John Smoltz did a great job of pitching. And, you know, at the end of the day, you, you know, you tip your hat and, uh, you know, wish you, you could have been the one that scored the run. But unfortunately, that wasn't the case. We were just glad to be able to be a part of it and be there. Were you shocked to see Jack come out for the 10th inning, or was that just how the game was back then? You know, he, to, to my knowledge, he, I don't remember, but I don't think that he had a ton of pitches. Uh, you know, it's not like he was up in the 130, 140 range, 150 range. But, I mean, the competitor that Jack was, I mean, you know, he was going to do every, everything he could. He hadn't given up a run. I mean, there wasn't any reason for him to come out of the ball game if he felt fine. And, uh, you know, that's the last time he was going to pitch that year. And uh, he had a lot of time to, re you know, relax and, and uh, get better. So, um, you know, he, he, phenomenal pitching performance by both guys. Yeah. I, I mean, that's I, – I was reading different lists and everything, and every list that you'll look at that goes down – that game seven goes down as one of the best games in baseball history, and it truly mm -hmm. is just – and you look at it, you think 0-0, zero, zero. That's, that's a boring yeah. game. But when you look at all the runners that were in scoring position and all the strategy behind everything, it's, it's just something like a baseball nerd like me just gets a big smile on his face when, you know, he exactly. talks about it. So we fast forward now to 1992. Uh, you guys get back, NLCS, Pirates – you're up 3-1 in the series, and the Pirates tie it. What yeah. was the atmosphere in the clubhouse like going into that game seven? I mean, obviously, I mean, shoot, you're sitting there thinking there's a little bit of angst, but at the same time, you know, we had our meetings. We had our, our little talks between each other. I mean, in regards to, hey, you know, today is another game. I mean, you know, they, yes, they might have the momentum, but, I mean, we'd come from behind so many times in our – 
in our other course of that year that I, we knew that we had, we had a confidence no matter what was going into that game. And, um, you know, but there again, I mean, we went into the very last inning being down two to nothing and, and uh, Doug Drabeck had pitched a masterful ball game for the, for the pirates. And, and, uh, but I, you know, I, I will say this, no, I mean, I did a, did an appearance with um, Terry Pendleton. And as we were sitting there talking about that particular play or that particular inning, Terry Pendleton, I mean, said, I knew, he said, I knew we were going to win that ball game. And so, I mean, I had my thing saying why I'm glad he knew because I certainly didn't. <laughs> and, uh, but at the same time, we had done it so many times throughout the course of that year in the ninth inning against people's closers that uh, we had no doubt in our mind that, I mean, we could do it. It's whether or not we were going to be able to do it. All right. Let's, let's get into it now. Take me through the play. You're on second base. You're the, you're the winning run. It's two to one. There's two outs, correct? Is that right? And yep. Francisco Cabrera, of all people, steps up to the plate. Um, and just knowing the game of baseball, I know you're running on contact. There's two outs. Mm -hmm. uh, just take me through your point of view from the moment the ball hits Cabrera's bat. Well, I mean, again, I mean, you, you just shared it. You no, know, I mean, you know, again, this is stuff that you practiced so many times. I mean, it's, it's just a habit. I mean, uh, you know, the one thing that I would say is the time that you had bat before I'd hit a double off of Doug Drabeck and uh, I was out at second base and they tried to pick me off twice because they knew my knees weren't the greatest. I mean, I couldn't get off the base. If you ever, if you, anybody ever watches that play and watches my secondary, uh, secondary lead, I'm basically out of the picture frame. I mean, you know, and I, and I had a big lead. I mean, I'm, I'm almost at least a third going on a half of the, not a half of the way down, but I'm, I'm at least a third of the way to third base when Stan Belinda's throwing that ball. And again, it's the situation. I know Stan Belinda with two outs isn't going to try to pick anybody off in case he throws the ball away. I'd seen him do it too many times before, throwing balls away. I knew he wasn't going to do that. So I knew I could get off the base a little bit more. Uh, you know, even, even with Spanky, though, Spanky could have thrown the ball down with my lead and probably picked me off at second base. But everything was focused on Francisco Cabrera's at bat. And... Uh, you know, so for that, uh, it was just it was just one of those things that uh, when Frankie swung the bat, my right foot was coming down. I took off with the crack of the bat and uh, did everything I could in order to get into home. And, and with five knee surgeries at the time on my right knee and one on my left and a big brace, I was not fast. I shouldn't have been out there. Uh, but uh, Bobby kept me there, and, and uh, because of that, uh, I was able to beat the pro by about three or four inches. Did you get the green light? I know that there's always a discussion that did they were they waving you home or no? A lot of people said that they've seen clip clipping or you know movie film clips about uh, Jimmy Williams giving me the the wave. You know, to this day, I've never seen I've never seen one movie clip that has showed Jimmy Williams giving me the the wave. I mean. Um, but at the same time, as I've told people, I didn't care. I mean, you know, you're always taught you put the pressure on the defense. We tied the ball game up. 
And, uh, you know, you put the pressure on the defense for us to be able to get another hit or a walk or something to that degree would be very, very difficult. And, uh, you know, so as soon as that ball was hit, my, my focus was on one thing, and that was getting to home. And, and if Jimmy Williams stopped, tried to stop me, I didn't see it. I don't know if he white was waving me. I don't know if he was stopping me. I, I had one intent, and that was getting to home. Take me through life after the slide immediately. I mean, you're, you immediately become a hero in Atlanta, and you obviously Pittsburgh, it's, it's a completely opposite situation. What Was it tough yeah. to deal with the Pittsburgh uh, backlash? Uh, I think, I think the worst, there were some, uh, certainly some bad things that took place during that time frame. I mean, in regards to, you know, somebody gave us a phone call, told them, told us he was, they were going to kill my effing family and so on and so forth. And, uh, you know, the, 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 the stupid stuff that happens in sports, um, you know, as far as these, these fans that, you know, just get carried away. Uh, there were some other things, but again, was it a little bit darker for me back then coming back home? Because I, I was always back here in Pittsburgh every every uh, off season. Uh, I never I never left Pittsburgh. I, I was in Wexford and and now I'm up in Zillion Opal, but I never left Pittsburgh in the off season. And and so uh, you know, was it dark? Like I said, there were some dark times because I mean, shoot. People, you know, they knew that their chances of getting back to that position again were, were slim. But for the most part, my speaking and the things that took place, I mean, we had a lot of fun with it. Uh, you know, even to this day, no, I mean, I still get people that say, you know, I've never forgiven you for what you did to me. And I said, well, you need to start working on getting over it. It's 28 years old, you know. Uh, but uh, I've had, I've had, man, 15 years, 20 years into it, going out and speaking and having people in the middle of my, in the middle of my series, part of the talk, stand up and say, you were out. And, uh, you know, but just having fun with it. So, um, um, you know, it, it was, a, I know it was a tough time here. I mean, good grief. I mean, they, you know, they had, they had to, in the dugout or in a clubhouse, they had to take the, take the platform down in, in just a, a couple minutes to get it over to our place. I mean, take all the stuff down that they were going to celebrate. And then just like that, it was taken away from them. And, uh, you know, the, not from the, just the pirates, but from the whole city. And so it, I know it was tough. I mean, there's no doubt I know it was tough, but I was doing only what I was called to do. And I mean, and that was to try to get home. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the game. Have you talked about that play with other players from the pirates? On that team, like, have you talked to Lavalier about it, Bonds about it, Van Slyke? Uh, obviously, Van Slyke. I mean, years, several years ago, I mean, we had a MLB uh, network interview with Van Slyke and Mark Lemke and myself, and we went through that whole that whole game. And uh, you know, so I certainly heard uh, comments from from Andy and you know Doug Drabeck and. You know, obviously Mike Lavalier and some some others, and Jeff King, Jay Bell. You know, heard a lot of comments from them. Um, you know, and and it and it hurts. I mean, good grief, that was the only chance that some of those guys were going to have to get there. So I know it hurts. Yeah. Just like it hurts that I didn't get a chance to win the World Series. Yeah. You know, so. Yeah. 
Um, did I see that you watched the entire game seven from start to finish for the first time ever in April? Did I read that correctly? Yeah, that, that is correct. During, during the during pandemic. The start of the COVID thing, yep. yeah. I sat down and watched it for the first time uh, ever since that time frame. What was it like to watch it back 28 years ago? Or 28 years in the future, I should say. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting there, truthfully, no, is trying to figure out what my – you know, it's, I've been so far removed from it right now. Uh, I try to figure out what my, what my attitude was, what, what was I thinking, you know, what was going on, you know, during that time frame, And, and, uh, but, you know, just to watch, sit back and, and watch that whole game process, uh, you know, watch how Doug, Doug just had every pitch going for him. I mean, he was every, every pitch he had, I mean, was working for him that night. And uh, you know, again, he he pitched a wonderful ball game, and and uh, you know, so uh, it it was a lot of fun just to be able to recollect everything that took place, and and uh, once again see the, see the end results. Does it bother you that you kind of, for better or for worse, I mean, you had a long career in the big leagues, you were a part of some successful teams, but you kind of get remembered for one play. Does that bother you at all, or no? No, most most individuals that played in the big leagues, I mean, they're obsolete within a couple of years. I mean, and that's and and I'm not trying to diminish what they did, but uh, most players, except for their family and some friends, I mean, they don't remember. They could walk into any place and people won't remember them. Uh, and 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 if it wouldn't have been for that particular play, Sid Bream would have probably been the same thing, uh, except for close friends and and family. Uh, you know, they, they wouldn't have known that I ever played baseball, but because of that one play that God allowed me to be a part of, um, you know, it, it has allowed me to be a part of, you know, history for, for the last 28 years. And uh, in Pittsburgh, you know, obviously it comes up because of something bitter, but in Atlanta, the southeast area, southwestern or, or southeast area, man, they love it down there. They, they still love it to this day. Yeah, so I, that's the bobblehead that came out a couple years ago. I know that was a really popular. 128 bucks is the cheapest you can get that on eBay right now. So that obviously means something to a lot of people. Yeah. What was it like to see the Pirates get back to the playoffs in 2013 after all those years of losing? I've been sitting here waiting for them to do it. No, I mean, I, uh, I, I, I root for them every year. I mean, and, and I, I rooted for him this year. thought, man, this could be a, a short season. They get on a roll and things start happening, and, and it just didn't happen for him again this year. And, I mean, it's, it's hard. I mean, because when you watch other small market teams, you know, Cleveland and Minnesota that always, you know, it seems like they're always competing. Um, it's hard. You know, I, I want our Pittsburgh Pirates to be up in the top as far as a sports sports world in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I'm, uh, you know, not that I don't like, I love, I love Pittsburgh Penguins hockey. I love seeing them up on top and, you know, you know, when the Steelers are up there, but I want the Pirates to get up there again. And I want them to be able to, you know, get, get the uh, city excited, you know, for them being contenders and, and playing, winning. I mean, not just being a contender, but I want them to win. And, uh, you know, so, I'm waiting for that day. I'm hoping that uh, this new group coming in will um, have the right design. I mean, and, and be given the opportunity to 
put a team together that's going to win for Pittsburgh. So as we wrap this up, uh, I want to know what you're up to now. I mean, you've been out of the game for a while. Uh, I, I already know because I did the research, but go ahead, tell the people who haven't heard from Sid Bream in a while, what, what have you been doing lately? Well, I mean, first of all, I mean, I, I, something that I'm very, very proud of. I'm a, I'm a grandparent of two kids now. Wow. Um, I just turned a big 6-0. Uh, but, you know, since, since 94, I've been doing a lot of speaking. I'm out on the speaking trail, and, and it's really because of that one play uh, in 92. But at the same time, for the last four and a half years, the owner of PGT Trucking has given me an opportunity to be a chaplain at his company. And, and, uh, and again, I want everybody to know, I wasn't looking for that job. <laughs> I, I mean, he asked me about doing it, and first thing I said, nope, I'm not a chaplain, don't want to be a chaplain. But I've uh, been there for four, going on four and a half years now, or actually five years here in November. And uh, it has been a real blessing trying to help people, trying to help them cope with all the struggles that are going on in this, in this life and in this world and, and getting them to put their faith and trust and focus on, on Christ. And um, so I'm, I'm thankful for what God has been having me do and been married for 37 years and uh to, a, to an awesome lady and uh got four kids and they've been a blessing and so it's it's just it's it's been fun i'm gonna be going on a uh elk hunt here pretty soon and so I'm, uh, i love the outdoors as well so i'm looking forward to it and it's it's been good god has been good to me yeah that's awesome to hear where can they, if someone's interested in booking you to do public speaking where can they find out information on that no, all they have to do is go to sidbream.com, uh, sidbream.com. I mean, a web page will come up, and they can. Uh, there's an area there that they can contact me to to get me to come and speak, and I would love to be able to do it. Love doing it now, and um, so uh, I think we'd have a great time doing it. So thank you for that opportunity. Absolutely, Sid. Thank you for coming on and talking about everything uh, i mean this is this has been an awesome interview an awesome conversation i think a lot of people are going to enjoy appreciate it noah great to meet you and and all the very best to you my friend all right